is away this week because his son, Pastor Dylan, is getting married on Tuesday. And so they decided to uh, get married in Florida, and so they are away this week. And so I'm here to preach the word. And so if you don't know who I am, I'm the executive pastor here, I'm Pastor Keith. And uh, we're so grateful that you came to join the Mission Church. And if you're joining on MC Online, we're grateful you're here as well. And uh, if you're a first-time guest or a visitor, we want to encourage you to stop by the Welcome Center as you leave the sanctuary this morning. We have a special gift for you, and I think it includes free gift cards to somewhere. So I think it's your choice. So if you're a guest here, don't forget to do that. But welcome to the Mission Church this morning. So we're going to continue our series in the seven churches in Revelation, and we're in Revelations chapter 3 with the church of Sardis, the church of Sardis. And so we're going to get into that in just a, a moment, but uh, first I want to tell you a little story. So before I became a pastor over 10 years ago, I was a financial advisor with Northwestern Mutual, and I completed a year internship with them. And with any financial institution, they sell financial products, and it was very competitive. And so although I did not consider myself a natural salesman, and I didn't consider myself very good at selling things, I was very competitive. And so when I'm in competition with other people, it forces me to be motivated to do things um, and to do the best of my ability at them. And so as a financial advisor selling financial products, I would meet with a mentor oftentimes. And so the mentor would go over different strategies in our meetings of how to be better at my job. And so I was meeting with this mentor, and this mentor said, you have to be careful not to target people who look wealthy. So when you're selling financial products, you obviously want people who have money. Thank you, Rob. Give it up for Rob. All right. Just in case. Just in case, all right. And so he, he said, be careful about targeting people who appear to seem wealthy. And he told me a story that one time, he saw this man driving a really fancy car, a really nice car. And so he assumed that this man driving a really nice car had the appearance of being wealthy. And so he targeted him and asked him to have a meeting. And they sat down and they went over all the financial products that they have and how he could help him with his financial goals. And as they got into the details, he realized that this man leased this really fancy car and was, in fact, had no assets whatsoever. He appeared to be really wealthy. He had the status of being really wealthy, well put together, but in reality, he had no wealth, no assets, and nothing behind him. He was empty. Looks can be deceiving. Amen? I mean, we're teenagers now growing up in this age of face masks. Looks can be deceiving. Have you ever wondered what someone looked like behind their face mask and they saw you, they took your face mask and you're like, oh, that's what you look like. You're growing up, right? When I was a teenager, the big sunglasses was a thing. So girls would wear big sunglasses or you couldn't really see what they looked like because they had huge sunglasses and then they took their sunglasses off and you're like, oh, that's what you look like. Looks can be deceiving. This morning, we're going to continue studying the seven churches in Revelation. We're going to study the church of Sardis. And the, the church of Sardis had the appearance on the outside that looked amazing, alive, healthy, and vibrant. But the reality is, it was a dead church. 
That's literally how they title this chapter, The Dead Church. And so Revelations chapter 3, as we read, it reads, And to the angel of the church in Sardis wrote, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what, at what hour I will come against you. Yet you will have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the dead church. What was dead about this church and needed reviving? Well, first, there was no indication that this church was under any persecution or trouble from any outside forces. Neither was there any heresy within, in contrast to some of the other churches that we have been reading about. Things seemed perfectly okay within this church, peaceful and religiously correct. Perhaps it was a church that was too good to be true. Its religiously proper appearance might only have meant that it had fully been silently compromising to the truth, with the truth and the pagan society around it. The theologian G.B. Caird calls the Church of Sardis the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. The perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. This might explain the calm and sedated outward appearance. It had the picture what a perfect church would be like. But in the inside, it was spiritually dead. The theologian George Eldon defined the church of Sardis as a picture of nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous, busy with the externals of religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power. What a disaster, having a church that looks good but is spiritually dead, that has all the religious activities that Christ is in the middle but lacks the power of Christ. It's like knowing God, having knowledge of God, but not having that personal relationship with Jesus. The outward appearance seemed great, but the inward workings were dead. Paul described Christians in this way in 2 Timothy 3.5 when he said that they seemed quite religious but denied God's power in their lives. It's a difference between knowing God and having a relationship with God. This community of the living dead needed the power of God to bring them back. And so as we read this narrative to the dead church of Sardis, Christ gave them three commands. And in verse 2, he told the church to wake up. How many of you need to wake up this morning? I am not a morning person. And having a three-year-old that is a morning person has stretched me a little bit because he is happy and joyful in the morning. 
and he jumps in my bed, and he says, wake up, and I don't want to wake up. Why don't I want to wake up? Because I'm a night person. I naturally do more tasks more efficiently at night than I do in the morning. That's just how I'm wired. I wrote this message at night. Why? I'm a night person. So what do night people do when they encounter morning people who are cheerfully joyful in the morning? They go, no. No, go play with your matchbox cars on your floor, please. Don't wake me up. But he forces me to wake up because I care about him. Because I can't let a three-year-old roam the house alone. You know what a disaster that is? A three-year-old that can reach chairs and get markers and do whatever he wants with markers. Right? I can't let him destroy the house, hurt himself. So I wake up because I have to be present. The church of Sardis, Christ gives them the command to wake up because they don't know they're actually dead on the inside. His first command was to wake up and to be strengthened. In other words, Christ is calling them to wake up and to self-examine themselves. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else. Desperately sick, who can understand it? How many know that your heart is deceitful? You're naturally wired in deceit. You are naturally sinful. You were born a sinful human being. And if you don't check yourself, if you don't examine yourself, you will fall into a spiritually dead life and lifestyle. Lamentations 3, 4 said, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. You see how it says, let examine our hearts, test and examine our ways because we're deceitful, sinful, and then let us return to the Lord. Meaning that we're naturally, not naturally in tune with God because we are sinful and deceitful which means we need Jesus Christ. We needed his death on the cross for our sins. We need him to be fully alive in our hearts so we can return to the Lord. So what if the church of Sardis became spiritually dead because they didn't want to put in the work to be spiritually alive? To examine yourself, to have introspect, takes a lot of effort and work and humility. To examine your heart and to say, I am a sinful human being, I have faults, and I am not perfect, and I need to fix those imperfections, take a lot of work. Do you understand that knowing you're imperfect and then making yourself perfect takes a lot of work? Because, well, you're not going to ever be perfect. Tell your neighbor you're not perfect. Tell yourself, I'm not perfect. You're never going to be perfect, but... To be more like Christ every day, it takes effort and work. We're told to examine our faith no matter who you are, where you're at. Your faith is tested often. Whether you face fear, anxiety, uncertainty, whether you face a financial crisis in your life, whether you face a health crisis in your own life or in your family's life, whether you face just day-to-day -day problems, your fear, anxiety, uncertainty is a test of faith. You're called to examine your faith. You're called to examine your works. In Galatians 3, or chapter 6, verses 3, it says, but let each one examine his work. We need to ensure that our works, our deeds, our actions are in agreement with our faith. 
I find it hilarious and very funny when I see people who wear a gold cross chain and are dropping the F-bomb everywhere they go. You go to the grocery store and you see, you know, the gold chain, and then they're like, blah, 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 and root to everyone. Because the symbol on their chest isn't reflecting in their actions. I find it incredible how people can label themselves Christians but know nothing about Jesus, nor want to know anything about Jesus, but wear a cross or call themselves Christians. When we have to examine our work, it means that we have to align our actions, our words, with our actual faith. And if we don't do that, then we are spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead people, spiritually dead, labeled Christians. When our actions don't reflect the love, mercy, and grace of Christ in our own lives. We have to examine ourselves through the perspective of God. In Psalms 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting Life. We need to remember that we can't properly examine ourselves without the help of God. We need to pray that God to show us our hidden sins and our faults and be ready to accept, accept those faults, repent, and to change our wicked ways. That's what self-examination is all about, understanding what is wrong and then fixing it. We can't just acknowledge that we have faults and problems and then not fix it. That results in spiritual death. That results in a spiritually dead church. If we're a church full of people who just have knowledge of God but don't have a relationship and are continually trying to be better and be like Christ, then we are spiritually dead. A spiritually dead church is full of spiritually dead people who do not examine their own hearts and do not walk in humility. It is hard work. Tell yourselves, I can do hard things. I can do hard things. Examining your heart is hard. It's not happy either. I don't like examining myself and saying, nope, I was wrong here. I'm bad here. I need to fix this. That is not a happy thought. That's not joyful. That's a painful experience. But how many know that growth can come from pain? And painful experiences help your faith. It's painful. The next commandment comes in verse 3. And he added that it must be remembered what had been received and heard. Remember the gospel. With the second command, Christ insisted that the dead church remember what it had received and heard. That is, it was to return to the basic teaching of the gospel. It had to have sound doctrine. I believe they were spiritually dead because they were religious. Their dedication to religion gave them a false sense of acceptance and security. How many know that just because you're religious doesn't mean you know Jesus. And so often, and so sadly, there are many churches who are just religious. 
without the Spirit of God, without the relationship with Jesus, that the religious activities are meant to give you a sense of security, but without the knowledge of the gospel and the personal acceptance of Jesus into your heart, you are doing everything out of appearance in your own feelings, and it's empty. Religious activity is empty without the relationship with Jesus. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. But the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. I am accepted at the infinite cost of Jesus, and because of the love of Jesus that I have, I then obey. Religion says, I obey. I do these sets of religious activities, and therefore God will accept me. But when I, I want to tell you, but when you are religious and you obey religious rules to get God's appear, approval, you get spiritually dried out really quickly because you can't keep it up. You can never say enough Hail Marys. You can never give enough money to the church. You can never be in enough church services or go to enough communions or water baptisms or worship with your words enough. You can never do enough to get God's approval because the reality is you are not enough, but Jesus is. You can't do enough, but Jesus already did. You are accepted at the infinite cost of Jesus Christ. Therefore, your lifestyle reflects that love and that mercy and grace. If you approach religion as an I have to do this set of rules, therefore God will accept me, you will never live up to that. And you never can because you are not perfect. But Jesus is perfect, was perfect, and died for you. Therefore, you're accepted because of what he did for you. When you have the knowledge and the freedom of knowing that you are accepted because of Jesus, then you can have spiritual life. I want to give you a biblical example of this. It's found in Luke 15. It's the, the story of the prodigal son. Most of us know this story, the prodigal son and we're going to not focus on what the story normally focuses on. So in summary, the prodigal son is the youngest son. He asks his father for his inheritance early. And so he begs his father, and his father reluctantly gives his son half of his inheritance or half of his wealth to his son. And so his younger son takes his inheritance, goes out, lives on his own, wastes all of his money, parties, finds himself poor with no food, and so he finds himself eating what the pigs eat, the scraps, and he thinks to himself, even my father's servants eat better than I am now, so I'm going to go back to my father and ask if I can be his servant. So the youngest son, after some time, runs home to his father, and his father sees him far off, and he sees his son coming home, and he runs out to him. And he gives him his robe and puts a ring back on his finger, which symbolizes that he's welcoming him back into the family. And it's a beautiful story of restoration because of the father's unconditional love for his son and recognizing the humility of his youngest son who went out and came back. And so it's a beautiful, wonderful story of the redemption and the restoration of coming back into God's family after choosing to leave it. But that's not what we want to focus on this morning. What I want to focus on is the oldest son, the oldest son who didn't leave, the oldest son 
who did everything he was supposed to. The oldest son, who was faithful to his father, did his work, did not ask for his inheritance and go and waste it all. The one who stayed, the one who was religious. In Luke 15, as we pick up the story, in verse 25 it reads, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave me nothing. Or you, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older son had the attitude that he has obeyed the father, and because he has obeyed the father, he has earned his reward that the younger son is enjoying. He falls into the religious and spiritually dead category. The older son followed all the rules. He was religious. He, on the outside, looked like the perfect, faithful son, the son every father wanted, but his heart's motives were wrong, and the results was his spiritually dead nature. And you can see his nature is reflected in his refusal to accept his brother back into the family. His spiritual hardness is on display when he can't or he won't celebrate his younger brother's return and restoration back into the family. You see, he did everything right, and because he did everything right, he felt like he earned his inheritance. He earned his reward. He earned everything that was to him. And because his brother did not earn that, wasted it all, but was humble and came back to the father, and the father so willingly, unconditionally loved him and accepted him back into the family, he was angry. He was mad. He thought, this isn't right. This isn't justice. This isn't fair. How many of you can say, this isn't fair, right? My life isn't fair. I serve Jesus with all of my heart, yet I still go through hardships. This isn't fair. Life is not fair. You haven't earned anything. It's all God's anyways. God graciously gives you spiritual life. God graciously gives you Life, God graciously gives you all your material possessions. It's all God's anyway. God graciously allows you to have things, to live life, allows you to have spiritual life because of Jesus who died on the cross for you. You haven't earned anything. But yet the younger son or the oldest son felt like he was wronged because he was faithful. Religious activity and faithfulness does not make you deserve a reward. Just because you go to church once a week, twice a week, just because you give your tithes and offerings, just 
because you take communion and you are water baptized, just because you become a member of the church doesn't mean you're going to heaven. You're only going to heaven because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you accepted Jesus into your heart and you have a personal relationship with Jesus. All, everything else is empty without that, but you can do everything else without Jesus. You can take communion without knowing Jesus. You can be water baptized without knowing Jesus, but they mean so much more when you have a relationship with Jesus because it's personal. Because you recognize that Jesus met you right where you are in your deceit, in your sin, in your messed up life, and he accepts you for who you are because he doesn't expect you to be perfect because the one who was perfect already came and died for you. Because of the freedom you have without the expectation of being perfect, then you can worship Jesus in celebration and, in, and have spiritual life. But everything else is empty in religion without Jesus. The third and final command that Jesus is saying in this chapter in Revelation is that the church had to hold fast to those things and repent. The church had to live according to the grace that it professed. The third command directed, directed the church to develop and maintain a spirit of loyalty and required them to humble, humble themselves before God. The thing about a spiritually dead Christian and a spiritually dead church is that that doesn't have to be permanent because you can repent and have the perspective and open your eyes to spiritual life. They were told, remember what you were taught, meaning that they were taught the gospel. They were once spiritually alive. But they got so caught up in their habits of religious activity that they became spiritually dead. God calls them to repent, which means there is hope for every single one of us. That we might, forgot, might have forgotten what Jesus did on the cross for us on a daily basis, but we can repent and come back. The church of Sardis was the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. And I believe that's because that church forgot how to live out the gospel in a bold and courageous way. Jesus told the Christians to love our enemies because Jesus expected us to have enemies. Jesus expected that his doctrine, Christianity, would offend other people. And so if we are a church that repents and goes back to Christ, we have to be a church that stands firm on the word of God. And the word of God offends people. The word of God, when applied to our lives, creates enemies of people and their opinions of us. Oftentimes, the church of Sardis is compared to Matthew 21, 19, when he compares or when Jesus curses a fig tree. And I, I could have the worship team come up. Jesus curses a fig tree. And in that verse, it, in that passage, it reads, Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. 
immediately that tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did this fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So Jesus being hungry, finding a fig tree with no fruit on it, Jesus cursed it so that it could never bear fruit again. Jesus found no fruit in the church of Sardis. So he threatened to come against it in judgment too. This fig tree incident sometimes is cited by unbelievers as an example of Jesus's fanaticism or his lack of kindness or irrationality. Why would he have expected to find fruit on this tree if it wasn't during the harvest time? And why treat this tree so harshly by cursing it? But these questions miss the point. Good fig trees are not like other fruit trees that only produce seasonally. In fact, fig trees have fruit on them all year round. Not as much during the winter, but there's still fruit on it all year round. That tree that Jesus cursed was not a good tree, and Jesus knew that it was not a good tree because it had no fruit on it whatsoever, so it couldn't have been seasonal. So Christ's condemnation on this tree was completely just. So just as this fig tree's fruit is not seasonal, the faithfulness and obedience of God's people is not seasonal as well. This church of Sardis has been living on a reputation that it had earned during its better seasons when it was strong and healthy, when it was producing fruit. It should have been practicing righteousness all along to reinforce its times against the unfruitful times. But since it had not done so, Sardis was a church without fruit. It was a spiritually dead fruit, deserving of the master's rebuke. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. So a fruitless church is a dead church. A fruitless Christian is a dead Christian. So what are the characteristics of a dead church? No fruit. It means a church is full of Christians who don't act like Christians. A dead church is full of people who have no spiritual life. A dead church is full of Christians only in label, not in action. So if you find yourself here this morning, and you call yourself a Christian, but your actions don't reflect Christ, you need to check your heart. You need to examine your life. You need to ask God, how do I become better? How do I become more like Christ? Because this church becomes dead when our actions don't reflect Christ. What are other characteristics of a dead church? No persecution changes doctrine according to our society's trends. A dead church is a church who believes in the word but doesn't follow the word. A dead church is a church who changes its doctrine based on culture. Do you see how dangerous that is? Culture rapidly changes. Society rapidly changes. 
A dead church is a church that changes with the culture and society and does not go to the word of God for its doctrine. A dead church is an inoffensive church. What does that mean? A dead church is a church that only lives out its faith inside of the church walls, but does not live its faith outside of the walls. It's an inoffensive Christianity. It means that you're allowed to practice and have freedom of faith inside church, but not bold and courageous enough to live out your faith outside of church. That's spiritual death in the making right there. If you're only comfortable being a Christian with other Christians worshiping in church, but you don't live that way outside of that church, you need to ask the Holy Spirit for boldness and courage in your life. A dead church is full of dead Christians who only worship Jesus in the comfort of those that surround themselves worshiping Jesus. You need to be able to live out your faith even when others around you are not living out their faith. If you only live out your faith in the comfort of your own church and you don't have the boldness and courage to live out your faith outside of church, you need the Holy Spirit to bolden. You need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. You need to be on fire for Christ and you need to ask God to challenge you in that area because if not, that's a recipe for spiritual death. If you're not challenged, if you're not offensive to others because of your faith, if you are not under any persecution whatsoever because you only live out your faith inside the church, I want to challenge you today to live out your faith a little bit louder, a little more boldly, a little more courageously. Ask God to give you the right words to say to different people, to convict you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Because believe me, spiritual life is the most fulfilling feeling you could ever have. Because Christ lives in you, and you don't have to be good enough. You just have to be humble. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to to be humble. And when you're humble before God and you say, God, use me inside and outside of church, you will have spiritual life. When you say, God, I repent of my sins and my past, you will have spiritual freedom. And let me tell you, this church, the mission church, is spiritually alive. And so if you're spiritually dead, that is your fault. That's how you have to examine your own heart and your own life and make a change. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I just want to remind you, and I don't know where you are here today, but if you have been running from Christ or if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, He is open and willing. He's just like the Father and the prodigal son. He sees you. He wants you. He runs to you. He will clothe you in righteousness. He will accept you for who you are in your humility, but it takes your first step. So with every eye closed, with every head bowed, if there is anyone in here today that's been running from Christ, you might know who Jesus is. You might have heard Jesus. You might be religious and go to church. But if you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus, I simply want you to raise your hand so I can acknowledge you. I won't embarrass anyone in here today. But we cannot talk about spiritual life 
without talking about the repentance. Amen, I see your hand. I see your hand. Is anyone else here this morning? Amen, I see your hand. Is there anyone else here this morning that knows who Jesus is but needs to know Jesus personally? Is anyone here else? Anyone else here this morning? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Just repeat these words after me. That's, in fact, the whole church, let's all repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, but you died on the cross for my sins, and I believe in you. So I accept spiritual life, and I praise you because of that. I am not perfect, but you are. So I accept you, Jesus, into my heart. Amen. Amen and amen. Can we give a clap offering this morning that lives have been changed this morning? Hallelujah. And so if you accepted Jesus into your heart this morning, I want you to go back to the Welcome Center. I'm going to go back there. Please have a conversation with me. Pastor Kathy's going to make herself available to you. Please have a conversation with us because we want to let you know that that decision changes the trajectory of your life. It changes your life in the best possible way because spiritual life in Christ gives you the freedom to live out God's calling on your life today. Amen? Amen. I'm going to have our pastors and deacons available, our prayer warriors available at the front. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray for you. But you have to leave. If you have to go get your kids, we've released you this morning. God bless you. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful day.